This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. My name is Richard Serrett. This is the Conspiracy Show. Congratulations, you found us. And before we get started, a big welcome to KBUF AM in Wichita, Kansas. Come on down, uh, a brand new affiliate, and I believe they will be joining the, uh, the broadcast beginning uh, July the 6th. Uh, so in a couple of weeks, we'll uh, we'll say how do to KBUFAM all over again. Anyway, uh, the hits just keep on coming. I believe we are closing in on about two dozen uh, U.S. affiliates. It, it comes, it goes up and down a little bit. We get we get twenty five, twenty six, and then uh, a station in Texas switches to all sports, and then you know we get knocked down a peg. But we're climbing that hill slowly, and eventually we'll get to that magic number, whatever it is. Um, however, very, very pleased to have KBUFAM Wichita join the Conspiracy Show. And thanks for adding us to your programming schedule. Just got back from uh, Chinatown here in Toronto. Had a wonderful dinner with uh, the great Jim Mars and uh, dear friends Patrick and Kadena from Conspiracy Culture. Uh, I had the honor of emceeing Jim's event uh, this afternoon at the Blur Cinema here in Toronto where Jim delivered a real, it was a gobsmacker, man. Just a remarkable presentation entitled Our Hidden History from Ancient Astronauts Ta- to 9-11. Ancient Astronauts to 9-11. I tell you, he covered a lot of ground. Essentially, what Jim did, did was he, he took his, his book, Rule by Secrecy, uh, which is a great primer for those of you interested in this vast area of inquiry, uh, and he condensed it into a one-hour PowerPoint presentation. He covered, as I say, a lot of ground in about an hour. And then after the event, event, we took everyone across the street to the uh, Popper's Pub, where we hoisted a few jars with uh, one of the foremost JFK assassination researchers alive today. And, uh, and incidentally, thanks to those of you who came up to me and, and, uh, and said hello and, and um, told me how much you enjoyed the, uh, the radio program. It was great meeting you. Uh, I remember reading Rule by Secrecy uh, many years ago. And my world view got turned upside down. I mentioned this at the event today, uh, and it's so true. And um, in particular, the passage about the Korean conflict 
where a certain Russian officer, I believe his name was General Vasilov, he was the one that gave the order for the North Koreans to cross over the 38th parallel in June of 1951, and thus began the, uh, the Korean conflict, the police action, right? It wasn't an actual war. Uh, anyway, in the book, Jim details how uh, Vasilev's chain of command went from Korea to Moscow and then on to the UN's Undersecretary General for Politics and Security Matters, another Russian who is uh, a General Zinchenko. Meanwhile, General Douglas MacArthur, who is, of course, leading the, the UN forces in South Korea, his chain of command goes from Korea to Washington, of course, to President Truman, and then on to the UN Undersecretary General, you got it, the same Zinchenko. So essentially, Zinchenko is coordinating both sides of the war. And of course, history, as we've learned, is replete with examples like this. And as Jim Mars points out, World War I and the Warburg, Warburg brothers. Which brings us to Iraq. Which is, um, I'm wondering, is this a repeat? Another case of uh, one side, in, in fact, controlling both sides in a conflict. You've probably re been hearing a lot about ISIS and the rise of the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant with its multi-pronged assault across central and northern Iraq in the past one and a half weeks. ISIS has taken over from the Al-Qaeda organization founded by Osama bin Laden as the most powerful and effective extreme jihadi group in the world. ISIS now controls or can operate with impunity in a great stretch of territory in western Iraq and eastern Syria, making it, making it militarily the most successful jihadi movement ever, according to the New Zealand Herald. While its exact size is unclear, the group is thought to include thousands of fighters. The last S in ISIS comes from the Arabic word al-Sham, meaning Levant, Syria, or occasionally Damascus, depending on the circumstances. Led since 2010 by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, also known as Abu Dua, it's, a, it's proved itself even more violent and sectarian than what U.S. officials call the core al-Qaeda, led by al-Zawahiri, who is based in Pakistan. ISIS is highly fanatical, killing Shia Muslims and Christians whenever possible, as well as militarily efficient and under tight direction by top leaders. So I thought for the next 40 minutes or so, we'll delve into Iraq. Who is behind ISIS? What is ISIS all about? Webster Griffin Tarpley is one of the most incisive critics of Anglo-American hegemony. As an active historian, he's best known for his book, George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography, a masterpiece of research, which is a, still a must-read. And, of course, his other books include the uh, masterwork 9-11 Synthetic Terror, made in the USA. And uh, we're delighted to have him back on the program this time around to talk about Iraq. Webster Tarpley, how are you, my friend? Thank you, Richard. Thank you for having me. Uh, just give us a sense of, um, uh, you know, we're, we're told that even al-Qaeda uh, finds the tactics of ISIS too unsavory, which, <laughs> <laughs> which says a lot, I suppose. But give us some insights into the, I suppose, the M.O. 
uh, of of uh, this group ISIS, and then we'll find the, out. The stuff about too much for Al Qaeda, I think, is a kind of marketing by hyperbole. What you notice is um, a great desire of the Anglo-American controlled media to build up these people, right? The supermen, ten feet tall, advancing like Tamerlane or Guderian, right? Nothing can stand in their way. And, of course, you can see what it is. Uh, this is a highly artificial organization. Why don't we start with ownership? It's generally understood that the boss, the immediate um, tactical commander of ISIS, uh, one step above this Baghdadi, is a Saudi prince, because the Saudis, of course, pay for it, right? The money comes from Saudi Arabia, and the guy who um, who funds it and therefore has the ultimate say is Abu Abd, uh, sorry Abdul Rahman Faisal. Now this is a very important family. He's one of the sons of the late King Faisal. He has two brothers that are notable. One is Prince Saud Al Faisal, who has been the foreign minister of Saudi Arabia for thirty or forty years now. And we've also got then Prince Turkey. El Faisal, who has been ambassador to London and to uh, to Washington, and then we have this Abdul Rahman Faisal, who is a graduate of the British Military Academy at Sandhurst, right? The British version of West Point or Saint-Cyr for the um, for the French. So that's uh, the the control. Now, where do they come from as individuals? They are, of course, the typical cross-section of the the jihadis and uh, fanatics of the entire Islamic world, right, from Morocco to Indonesia, from Chechenia to to Somalia, and so forth. But uh, in particular, they have been trained by NATO. And I have articles here from uh, Der Spiegel of Hamburg, uh, repeated then in Reuters, and also from the London Guardian that point out that these... Um, forces, and it's about uh, 10,000 is the target, right, which seems to be the, the number of, uh, of these ISIS people, were being trained at the classic base in Jordan. And they were being trained by the CIA, by the British uh, MI6 and the Special Air Services, by the French DGSE, uh, and, of course, the money coming from, from Saudi Arabia. They've also enjoyed a great deal of support from Turkey. We had uh, one of the preludes to the Ghouta chemical warfare incident of last August, which was, of course, a sham, right, a, a fraud, uh, was that a group of ISIS came storming out of southwest Turkey to attack the Syrian city of Latakia there on the Mediterranean coast where Turkey and uh, and Syria meet, south of the city of Alexandretta, I believe. And there, these ISIS killers massacred groups of Alawite children, Christian children, and others. And apparently those are the cadavers that were put on display in the um, films that were used to try to popularize the notion of a Ghouta uh, chemical weapons massacre last uh, August. After that, these ISIS fighters were then shipped across southern Turkey and uh, put across the border into Syria near the city of Raqqa, which is a, it's the province that is the farthest in the northeast of, uh, of, uh, of Syria, so that they could then uh, go across the border. Now, remember that 
U.S. Ambassador John Negroponte, whose name is synonymous with death squads, right, since his activities in Central America, and his disciple, Ambassador Robert Ford, who superintended the building up of the, of the current crop of death squads in Syria, uh, they had been scheming since 10 years ago, say, or almost 10 years ago, to try to set up a force of ISIS, or well, in this case, Al-Qaeda-style Sunni, Salafi, Wahhabi, Takfiri um, fighters that could be used against uh, the governments that they wanted to topple. So this is, this is what has been attacking uh, Assad in Syria, and it's the, it's the same operation, which has now gone, gone across the border into Iraq. As far as Baghdadi is concerned, right, he was, of course, a U.S. prisoner of war, from 2005 to 2009, and I like to say he has a four-year degree. He's got a diploma from the U.S. as a brainwashed patsy, because once you're a U.S. POW, I hope everybody realizes that the way you get out of that is you become a double agent working for the U.S., and we've seen that with uh, Kumu in Libya, with Shiri in Yemen, and now with Belhaj also in Libya, and now we've got we've got the case of Baghdadi. These are people that are retooled, reconfigured, redirected to go and attack the people that the U.S. wants them uh, to attack, and they and they prosper uh, in doing so. So this entire thing is, is a fraud, uh, you you could say, but it's also a fraud that has a certain uh, reality. Now the the other thing I would point to is the notion that the Iraqi forces ran away, and we've, we're hearing about how how they all uh, disappeared. Um, there's a very interesting French historian, Anila Quarry, who has proven, I think, beyond any doubt, that the French generals who let the Nazis uh, roll over France with their blitzkrieg in May and June of 1940, most of those generals did this deliberately. In other words, these were French generals who actually preferred Hitler to the French Socialist Party uh, government that they they felt was uh, oppressing them. In this case, I would say many of these Iraqi generals are bribed by the CIA. The, the word we're getting is that the soldiers say we were told by our generals and by our officers that we should run away. So All it right. starts with the with the officers. Now, hang on, Webster. I got to jump in here. We've got uh, the music coming up, which uh, is okay. my cue that we're going to head into a break. On the other side, we'll continue to discuss ISIS. Who are they? Who's behind them? And whither Iraq? Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay a while. We are talking about uh, ISIS. Uh, and I don't, I don't know if you've seen these videos, but, but this group, horrifically violent. Uh, we've, these professionally made propaganda videos that, that show ISIS forcing families with sons in the Iraqi army to dig their own graves before they're shot. And the message here seems to be that ISIS enemies can expect... Uh, no mercy. So we're trying to figure out who is ISIS, who's behind them, and what do they want, what do they hope to achieve. Uh, Webster Tarpley is uh, with us, philosopher of uh, history uh, and a uh, uh, an author. Uh, let's. Um, I, I want to go back to uh, the source of uh, the story. You're saying that Der Spiegel and other um, groups or other organizations, uh, other newspapers in Europe are reporting that ISIS was trained in Jordan they reported this in March of 2013, that, that a, a training camp in Jordan was busily preparing these people. Now, of course, they, they said, and these are supposed to be 
non-sectarian, uh, in other words, not Salafis, not um, not Sunni fanatics, but that's, of course, just um, a, a, a slight matter of redirection. You know, the, the Free Syrian Army no longer exists. This was funny. This was uh, all of last year we were told by the CIA that General Salim Idris and his secular friends were going to be the counterbalance to al-Qaeda and Nusra and the Islamic Front and all the rest of them. And this, this has now simply disintegrated. Any weapons that had been given to the FSA would indeed now or are in the hands of uh, al-Qaeda. Idris fled to Qatar in February. Uh, his number two is now in Sweden. And the number, uh, the number three, I think, is in the Netherlands. That guy's the founder of the entire thing. So it's completely gone. So they retooled that and turned it into this uh, this grouping that you uh, that you see now, which is what it was anyway all the time. Interesting to see why. First of all, the Syrian uh, civil war is being lost by the NATO uh, puppets. In other words, the be it the the Saudi paid or the French paid, any any way you want to cut it, they're losing. Assad is winning. The city of Homs has been liberated. The city of Aleppo has been liberated. So the the, uh, the guerrillas and, and killers in Syria have been pushed more and more out of the uh, inhabited areas and into the somewhat uh, arid regions of north uh, northeast Syria. There's also a question of the overflights, right? If you seize control of northern Iraq, then the Iranians can no longer send uh, plane loads of assistance to Assad, to Hezbollah, and to uh, and to their own revolutionary guard forces that are that are engaged inside uh, Syria. Well, this is where it gets um, strange for me, Webster, and I need you to sort this out for me. Why is the United States talking about working with Iran uh, to uh, to stem the tide of of ISIS? What's going on there? I think this is this is a kind of um, unavoidable uh, byproduct. Uh, I, I think the the principal goal is this to get bombing. I would watch somebody like McCain. McCain seems to be the spokesman of this warmonger clique that is behind it. And I'll try to say exactly who those are. But McCain has been saying, bomb now, bomb now. And if you listen to McCain and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina and um, some others, they also say once the bombing starts, it has to be extended into Syria immediately. And of course, then they will undoubtedly cheat in other words they won't they wouldn't just bomb the bases of ISIS they would start bombing Assad which has been the thing that they've they've wanted so it's a it's a back door to the war with uh, Syria and of course on the other side you could also begin saying well once we're bombing northern Iraq again maybe we'll uh, have a few of those go astray into Iran and then it becomes very very uh, dangerous i i would say that the group behind this is um is is mad as hatters, in other words, mad as March hares, and and here's here's what I have in mind. There are three coups that are uh, aimed at with this ISIS. One is the coup to overthrow Assad, right? To finally get rid of the Assad regime, which I I I think is not wise because this happens to represent the only chance for something that looks like civilization in Syria. It'll be an, it'll be another Libya. Terrible. It'll be total lawlessness there. It'll be it'll be something perhaps even worse because the the the, the criminal energy in in Syria is, is maybe greater. There's also a hope of overthrowing Maliki, right? The the West has been 
screaming about Maliki. They want to demonize him. They want to blame him for everything. It's ridiculous because the people that he was supposed to negotiate with never wanted to negotiate with him, right? The Sunnis consider the Shiites in Iraq to be second-class uh, citizens, right? It's a very strong, deeply rooted prejudice. But the coup that interests me the most is the one here in Washington, because the goal of all of this is to finally get control of Obama and make him into what he has been reluctant to be, and that is a, a warmonger, a, uh, an aggressor. Uh, Obama, of course, typically is a weak, passive president, but if you look at his response to the recent crises, uh, you can see that the U.S. ruling class is apoplectic with rage. There is a war psychosis here, and it goes something like this. They say, we wanted to bomb Syria, and you, Obama, got in the way. You let Putin avoid the bombing of Syria. They also say, we never wanted to negotiate with Iran. We wanted to bomb Iran. And here again, Obama, you've got this negotiation going, and this is unacceptable. And they're also and then, saying if you hadn't pulled out those troops from Iraq, we'd have more options. We'd have boots on the ground right now. Yes, we'd have options. But of course, that, that, was, uh, that was Maliki at the time, right, under domestic pressure, which you can see. You can imagine how much domestic pressure there was. Get those Americans out of here forever, and none of them remain. And that was, that was their position. This was nothing... Nothing that Obama could change, as far as I can see. There was also quite a bit of pressure of U.S. public opinion saying, no, no, not 10, not 15, not even one. Get them all out. There's, a, there's also a huge embassy and, and, and quite a few hundred uh, Marines and, and others. But the, uh, the other one, of course, that, that weighs heavily on the U.S. ruling elite is Ukraine, right? They feel tremendously humiliated that they haven't been able to deliver for – this, um, this neo-Nazi clique in Lvov and in, in Kiev uh, that Putin has been able to assert some kind of Russian defensive posture, I would say, right? With his, with his back to the wall after all these years of NATO expansion, he, he prevented NATO from grabbing the entirety of, of Ukraine. Uh, there is a school in the ruling class that says, put one NATO division into Ukraine, that is Jessica Matthews, of the uh, Carnegie Endowment and the board of uh, Harvard University. She says one U.S. brigade and then one battalion from each of five or six NATO countries. I'm sure Canada will be one of them. If it comes to this, two brigades would make one division. So that would be one division. Um, however, the, the alternate school, Anne-Marie Slaughter from the uh, State Department, what a name, I guess her name is her program, she says it's a mistake to attack Putin in Ukraine because he's too strong there. Better to attack him in Syria. And then, lo and behold, now we see uh, something that looks like a plan to bomb uh, Syria. I would simply point out we've had this um, night of the living dead here. All of the neocons have risen from their graves, and that would be Pearl and Wolfowitz and Max Boot and the entire cabal from from 10 years ago right the authors of this catastrophic war and above all we have cheney cheney assisted now with his daughter put out in the wall street journal on wednesday uh, a tirade which i would i would read it as a call for a coup d'etat against obama quite frankly he has obama's been wrong about everything obama's a fool obama is blind um and then uh, obama is betraying 
the U.S. past and squandering U.S. freedom. It sounds like, you know, will nobody stop this man, right, in the uh, murder in the cathedral? Uh, but you get the idea. The goal of this, and, and McCain has said it, McCain wants everybody out, Kerry out, Rice out, and he wants General Petraeus, the CIA and the Pentagon, in General Keene, left over from the 2007 surge in, and uh, Ryan Crocker, who was the U.S. ambassador during the surge. So you get the idea. Uh, Crocker says you can't undo an invasion, but you can undo a premature disengagement by re-engaging. And of course, he, <laughs> he doesn't spell out what he means by that, but it's clear, right? He wants to start start the war anew. And behind this group are the Kagans, right? Kim Kagan, Institute for the Study of War, Frederick Kagan, American Enterprise Institute. This is the, the surge again. Donald, uh, sorry, Robert Kagan, top advisor to Romney on foreign affairs, and his charming wife, Victoria Newland, the foul-mouthed one, right, the blankety-blank, the EU. Right, right. From, uh, Let me just recap here. Ukraine. Let me just recap, uh, Webster. So you're saying that uh, it's, it's the old, um, you know, create the uh, disease in order to offer the cure. So, they, uh, so NATO and their allies uh, train ISIS in this camp in Jordan, unleash them uh, in Iraq and Syria. Uh, to destabilize uh, in Iraq, uh, the ca- in the case of Iraq, it's Prime Minister uh, Maliki, um, and that will give them the excuse to put boots back on the ground in Iraq, or to maybe it doesn't doesn't have to go quite that far. Remember, the goal is a coup in Baghdad, and the coup in Baghdad would be Maliki out, and then they say a national unity government. But what they want is Alawi, the classical U.S. and NATO puppet. Iyad Alawi, he has been uh, prime minister. This, by the way, is another reason that uh, WikiLeaks and Assange were a CIA limited hangout, because if you go back to the WikiLeaks pile, uh, lots of bad things about Maliki. Maliki is demonized there, too. So Maliki has been demonized here uh, six ways to Sunday. But hasn't Iraq been under... uh, Zombies come out. But hasn't Maliki, uh, Iraq under Maliki, been a a pretty good client state for the United States already? Uh, I I suppose it's a mixed picture. Just that the U.S., uh, the, 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 let's call it the rogue network, right, the invisible government, because Obama does not command these people. Rather, they seek to command... Uh, Obama, they don't want Maliki because he's pro-Iranian. This, the, the argument begins and ends with that. If you're pro-Iran, they want you out. Now, of course, as you point out, there is this contradiction that a number of these U.S. characters are saying, well, we want the Iranians to do the dirty work for us. Um, maybe a couple of things about that. Um, one is that some of the neocons are already trying to push the Iranians out. Max Boot. Uh, for example, top neocon and one of the people in the uh, in the high levels of the uh, Romney campaign, Max Boot has got an op-ed in the uh, at the Wall Street Journal this week. No cooperation with Iran, demonize Iran, don't let this change. So they're worried about that. Um, and of course, again, once the bombing starts, if it starts, then uh, then it might creep into Syria, might creep into uh, into Iran. I would also point out Rouhani, right, the head of Iran is warning the Saudis, saying to them essentially, you are creating a Frankenstein's monster, right? We know you are paying for ISIS, but uh, ISIS will not stop. ISIS is going to come 
to Riyadh and overthrow you uh, as well. It, it's like Philippe Egalité during the French Revolution, if you know that one, right? A member of the royal family tried to ride the tiger of the revolution, ended up on the guillotine, head chopped off. So that's, that's what's looking at these, uh, these Saudi royals. But again, the, the thing that concerns me perhaps most is the U.S. coup, that you've got this ruling class, and this, this is not just neocons. This is the humanitarian bombers, the Samantha Power Group, the responsibility to protect people. They're, they're part of it. You've got the Islamophobia group led by the neocon Bolton, but you've also got some Clinton-gate people, um, this law professor Jonathan Turley. So you've got the, a, a whole series of networks that are coming forward. And the, the main demand they have is that Obama is not the warmonger they want, and somehow they've got to get control of him and, uh, and force him to do these things. Because if you look at what Obama has done, it's a series of token actions. He's stalling. Uh, he doesn't do this for national uh, interest reason. I think he's, he just sees that, that it's bad for Obama. If you start a war, then six months into the war, you're going to be impeached. right? If you bomb now, you can count the months until you will be impeached and, and removed from office because these are Republicans who, uh, who hate him. And if they get the majority in, uh, in November in the Senate, then they can uh, quite possibly... Uh, remove him from office. All right, got to jump in here. Got to jump in here. Webster Tarpley stays with us back on the other side as we continue to drill down on ISIS in Iraq. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Welcome back. And according to informed Jordanian officials, this is being reported in a number of um, European uh, newspapers, Der Spiegel in Germany, members of the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, or ISIS, which is rampaging across uh, Iraq, uh, apparently trained in 2012 by U.S. instructors working at a secret base in Jordan, and we're learning from Webster Tarpley, uh, that they are being funded largely by members of the Saudi royal family. Here we go again. Uh, we're being suckered, apparently, once again. But I guess... Uh, Webster, uh, the uh, the War Party has decided that uh, we're n- they're not going to be able to sucker us with the weapons of mass destruction uh, lie this time. So, is that why they've gone to the effort to create this uh, uh, this band of animals, uh, you know, in order to convince or to galvanize public support for some sort of military action? Well, if you look carefully, we're we're back to nine eleven and, and the idea that if you if you allow these uh, takfiris, right, these primitive uh, characters, if you give them a, a base or a sanctuary from which they can operate, then they'll organize nine eleven. And I've written a whole book trying to show how how absurd that whole thing is, how this could could never be done. And in any case, if you're if you're concerned about that, as you pointed out before, you should be looking at Libya, where large sanctuaries have now been available rather closer to Europe and, uh, and you know, the sea lanes uh, and so forth. Um, I would say um, one, of the, one of the funny things from crazy things from the U.S. point of view is you're expected to regard Syria, Assad of Syria, as an enemy. I don't think he is. I think he's fighting against terrorism. Uh, if you want to destroy the bases of, of ISIS, those are in Syria – you ought to work with Assad to destroy those bases. And, of course, Iran is the most stable country in the entire area. It's an island of stability and, and to some degree, of rationality compared to, uh, 
to ISIS. Uh, on the other hand, you're supposed to regard Saudi Arabia as an ally. Look at this. The Saudi elite, the Saudi royal family, is pouring money into terrorism in Syria and in, uh, in, in Iraq, the ISIS, and somehow uh, that, that's tolerable. I, I, I recommend one of the ways to end this crisis very fast. A 24-hour ultimatum by the United States and whoever wants to join in saying, Saudi royal family, stop it. Stop funding those terrorists. No more logistics or else you're on your own. You can, uh, you can make your own plans for self-defense. And, of course, they, they can't do it. And it's also funny when you see Cheney. Cheney goes through. His, he's got this, as I say, this screed in the Wall Street Journal at midweek, which, which can, it's the, one of the most violent tirades against the president. And, again, to me it reads like an invitation to disgruntled military people to, uh, to be insubordinate, right, to, to look at a, a, the possibilities of a putsch. In, in, uh, in Cheney's uh, article, he says, oh, when I talk to people in the Middle East, they say, why are you betraying us? How come you're not supporting us? Let's turn that around. I would say to the Saudis and the Qatar people and the entire Gulf, why are you betraying us by funding terrorism that is undermining this, this attempt by the U.S., whatever you want to call it, to have some kind of a stable government in, uh, in Iraq? And, and again, you've got to distinguish between the Obama White House, which is, again, a passive and uh, somewhat timid player, but nevertheless seems to represent uh, a moment of uh, breaking, right? Uh, you know, putting on the brakes compared to the CIA and these other forces who are raving and, and this clique in the Congress around around McCain and, and Lindsey Graham and the rest of them, right? And I think a lot of people don't, they can't quite register the fact that Obama might have been Trilateral Commission, you know, 2008, and very bad at the time. But he has long since been surpassed in evil by these other people, uh, so much so that uh, when Obama ended the Iraq war in 2011, I think that was what the uh, population here wanted. And uh, the response to that was Benghazi. In other words, uh, uh, I call it a, an October surprise in the era of early voting, right? You had to have the, the October surprise in September to make sure you'd impact all the people who were sending in their ballots in the, uh, in the beginning of October. That was done, in my view, by Petraeus, by Bolton, by Carter Ham, and others. And the, the, the goal of that was to make Romney the president, because all the neocons had attached themselves to Romney. And that's, we're, we're seeing that same faction uh, in action now around Petraeus. Petraeus okay. is the leader of the neocon uh, faction. All right, let's take a time out, Webster. We'll come back. We'll do uh, one more segment and uh, continue to discuss ISIS in Iraq. And time permitting, uh, we'll get around to Ukraine as well. It's still okay. happening, folks. Ukraine. Let's not forget about Ukraine. Absolutely. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Webster Tarpley stays with us for a few moments uh, yet. And uh, Webster's uh, uh, website is tarpley.net. T-A-R-P-L-E-Y. Uh, dot net. Uh, just, I just want to ask you a couple more questions regarding ISIS, and then I want to move into uh, Crimea and Ukraine and Putin. Uh, and, sure. and Baghdadi, is he being built up to be the next Osama bin Laden? Uh, it's possible, but again, remember, he's a graduate of a U.S. Uh, brainwashing academy for terrorists. I mean, he, he doesn't have the Guantanamo Bay degree, but 
like uh, somebody like uh, Bel Hajj, right? Bel Hajj, big warlord in Libya these days. He was only uh, in U.S. custody for a couple of years in uh, Vagram or someplace in uh, in Afghanistan uh, and, and that theater. So, again, the, the fact of being four years in a U.S. prisoner of war camp and then being let out, this tells you something. And it's the opposite of what the stupid reactionary might think, right? Where reactionaries are all screaming, oh, you let them out. They fooled you. They went back to the fight. Yes, they go back to the fight, but they're going back to fight against Assad, Gaddafi, or in this case, uh, Maliki, who are U.S. targets. So they're, they're working for the U.S., right? Probably it's going to be hard to duplicate the, um, the, the tremendous media buildup, right? The hundreds of millions of dollars in, in free publicity that were, that were invested in, uh, in Osama. Oh, and and um, Baghdadi, is, as you say, a graduate of the um, the military uh, training academy, was at Camp Buka. <laughs> yes, Buka. That's where they. Uh, that's where he got a light rinse. I would say <laughs> a light rinse. A light rinse. All right. Let's uh, let's talk about um, we, you know our attention has been diverted from uh, Crimea, uh, but you're but you're saying that uh, the, the war party has decided they're not going to confront Putin in Ukraine. He's too strong there, and so the idea is to take the war to. Uh, Russia, but do it in Syria. But let's talk about what's happening. Just bring us up to date on, on what's going on in, 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 uh, let, let in Ukraine. Let me just do it from, from, from the point of view of what we know here. This uh, Monday, the past Monday and Tuesday, we had a very high-level uh, event. It's called the World U.S.-Russia Forum, and it's uh, uh, people of a, of a very, um, again, very high level. We had uh, a former Russian prime minister, Stepashin, involved. We had Sergei Mironov, the head of the Equitable Russia Party, it represented in the State Duma. We had a former uh, Russian ambassador to Washington. The, 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 the remarks that I would focus on, are, those are Professor Stephen Cohen, who is a former professor at uh, Princeton and uh, NYU. He's also the husband of Katrina Vanden Heuvel, the, uh, the owner of The, the Nation, magazine and uh cohen is is a is a reasonable uh authority on on russian affairs in a time of great uh madness and his his points were two the first is that putin is under tremendous pressure from russian public opinion to step in because we've got this chocolate king right poroshenko the new president of uh of ukraine his government is still chock full of neo-fascists and neo-Nazis. Uh, one of them is this guy Yarosh, who threatened some time ago to blow up gas and oil pipelines. And lo and behold, this past week that has happened. But the idea is that Poroshenko is continuing to send his military to kill large numbers of civilians in Lugansk, in Donetsk, and so forth. And the one common denominator from all Russian spokesman at this conference, which was held in the Hart Senate office building. It was held in, a, in part of the U.S. Uh, Congress. The demand is call off this military attack on the civilians because the, the Russian public opinion can see this, and they're saying to Putin, what you're doing is not enough. We want action now. We want you to interdict these uh, these uh, genocidal moves by the by the Ukrainian forces and the demand that they're making is a no-fly zone. The U.S. has extended no-fly zones right in Iraq over many many years. The entire 
decade of the 1990s practically. And in that case, uh, what they're saying is, Putin, we want the Russian Air Force to interdict any military flights, any flights at all coming into eastern Ukraine. That's that's number one, and that's what he's getting from his uh, from his sources, right? This guy Cohen. The second point that he makes is that if this crisis goes on, there is a tangible risk of tactical nuclear warfare, nuclear exchange. And I was very glad to hear this because I have been saying similar things about Ukraine since about 2004. It is the only place in the world where a clash between two military establishments with nuclear armament can occur. There's nothing like this in the Middle East. It's just not there. But in this case, we could have Polish NATO troops intervening in support of the Kiev regime, and they're more likely to do it because Poland wants a peace of Ukraine, right? Most of Ukraine was a part of Poland at one time or another. They probably want it back. You could have Polish troops coming in from the west, Russian troops coming in from the east. The Russian troops have nuclear weapons. The Polish troops would make an appeal to the U.S. for the nuclear umbrella, and you could see World War III taking off. And this is not hyperbole. This is not an exaggeration. This is very definitely something that could happen. We're, we're much too close to this right now. It would be time uh, for, I think, the, the United States and Russia ought to tell this guy Poroshenko, stop it, stop what you're doing. And of course, the, the U.S. is doing the, the opposite. Right? We've got the neocon, again, Madame Kagan, also known as uh, Victoria Newland, right, the foul-mouthed one, uh, has been, you know, urging, you know, undoubtedly uh, spurring on Poroshenko and Yarosh and Tiani Bok and the rest of these uh, fascists, really, that's all we can call them, uh, to, to be more and more militant, to be more and more hostile uh, to the Russians. Right? So I think at, from Obama's point of view, this stuff is, is way out of his control. He, he uh, is confronted with a fait accompli uh, every day. Now, he ought to assert himself and put a stop to it, but uh, his presidency is is effectively be... over, <laughs> but I mean, it's so Poroshenko is being uh, encouraged to provoke Putin. It, it sounds sure. like they want nuclear war. Uh, the the idea when you're dealing with neocons, they will always tell you, "Don't worry, the other side will back down." That was the case, for example, just before 9/11. In the first months of the Bush administration, we had this American uh, spy plane, electronic uh, surveillance plane that was forced down. It had a collision with a Chinese fighter. It tried to land in Vietnam, but it landed in China. Remember that one? I do. I recall that. The, the neocons, as I write in my book, uh, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, that you were kind enough to mention before, the neocons at that point wanted to go to the brink. They wanted to say, give us back that plane within six hours, or we're going to do this, that, and the other thing. And they thought that they could get the, uh, the Chinese to back down. In this case, they would say, if you really go to the brink and threaten an all-out nuclear first strike, then then Putin will back down. I think this is a terrible mistake. These people, you can see, they're not reliable, right? Their whole track record is bungling and so forth, but they are, they're addicted. They're wedded to that kind of a doctrine. So uh, you're dealing with people who are, who are lunatics, right? And it's just 100 years since Sarajevo. And I don't know if this was covered in any of your... Uh, your talks there with uh, with Jim Mars, but Sarajevo, this was British intelligence acting through various Serbian 
uh, you know, assets that they had to set off a general European war. I don't think there's any doubt about that. We've got some very interesting accounts that some top people in London were sitting around on that afternoon and they were saying, hey, has the news come in from uh, Sarajevo? Do we have any news on the telegraph and so forth? And then when it came, they, they went into action. So that was 100 years ago this week. And so, uh, uh, I mean, it has happened. It can happen again. Well, what 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 has you more worried? The situation in Iraq, Syria with ISIS or the situation in Crimea? Well, because these lunatic neocons and their responsibility to protect humanitarian bomber colleagues, they all see that as as a single engagement. In other words, it's a the struggle for world domination and they they feel that they've been humiliated and that somehow they've got to uh to to assert themselves i would urge them to look at it the other way um one of the things the point was made by uh sergey mironov at this uh this uh, uh u.s russian meeting on capitol hill he pointed out that there is no major problem in the world that can be solved without the agreement of Russia and the United States, right? He said, this is the most important geostrategic relationship in the world. And I would read that as the offer of a condominium. It essentially says, why not have a joint directorate for significant parts of the world of the United States and Russia? Uh, For example, it would be capable of saying to Saudi Arabia, stop it. And they would have to take that very seriously. You could also tell the Israelis and the Palestinians, here's the peace deal. This is what it's going to be. Now you implement it. You could also go to China and Japan and say, look, um, these rocks in the ocean that you're so concerned about uh, do not uh, interest the rest of the world as much as they do you. You're going to cool it on that because we're not going to have World War III over this idiotic pile of rocks. And there are similar other points around the world, right? You could imagine a solution to Cyprus or any number of other things. Um, That would be uh, U.S. and Russia working together for war avoidance, right? Well, Uh, maybe I'm naive, uh, uh, Webster, but uh, Putin strikes me as someone that the West could very easily work with. I mean, but, you know, he's everyone, everyone prefaces before they say Putin, they say former KGB uh, Putin, or they say, you know, he's the new Hitler. Uh, But as far as I'm concerned, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, I mean, as an Orthodox Christian, I see what he's done with the rebuilding 26,000 Orthodox churches in Russia. He's given them their land back. He's a he's an avowed uh, a free market uh, capitalist. Well, well, now, wait a minute. That gets to be a problem. I would just say this. Russia has always been concerned about overland invasions. Poland in the 1600s, Sweden in the 1700s, France with Napoleon in the 1800s, Germany and Hitler in the 1900s all come through white Russia and, and Ukraine. You have to understand that they have a right to, to a friendly government there. Oh, absolutely. They're I agree. They're very concerned about warm water ports, and they don't like Nazi ideology because of the 25 million dead in World War II. No, Putin is... his position it, is reasonable. You're right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, I, I wish we had more time, Webster, but we will uh, we'll pick it up again. And uh, you're going to join me on Coast to Coast next week. Looking forward I'm to looking that. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much. All right. Tarpley.net. Thanks, Webster. Bye-bye. RichardSerrett.com. Don't forget to register. And as always, follow the truth. Thanks for inviting me into your home. And uh, wherever you may be, 
I wish you were safe, dry, warm, and well-fed. Say, have you registered at richardserrett.com yet? It's free. It's easy. Uh, just log on to richardserrett.com. Click on the member area login button on the left-hand side, and uh, that'll gain you access to member-only areas of the website, like, like uh, past show archives, audio archives. And plus, you'll receive my brand-new newsletter, The Dead Drop. It's not drop dead. I've had a couple of people who have received that in their inbox and just looked at it very quickly and, and thought I was telling them that to drop dead. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. The dead drop. It's an old uh, espionage, a tradecraft term if you're not familiar with it. Anyway, if you haven't done so already, do it now while you're listening to the uh, the program while it's top of mind, richardserrett.com. And uh, I've had a couple of phone calls and emails, people having some difficulty uh, registering. Uh, if you are, drop me a line uh, through the website, and uh, I'll try to walk you through it, or I'll contact my webmaster, but uh, I, I want to make sure that it's as simple as possible, and I think we've constructed it so that it is. Anyway, apparently some people are having difficulty registering. Uh, a couple of weeks ago on the program, I was talking with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who joins us once a month, about this remarkable story uh, of this young boy in the Golan Heights near the Syrian-Israel border. And um, he's um, of the Druze uh, ethnic group. And in his culture, the existence of reincarnation is accepted as fact. Uh, and his story, nonetheless, had the power to surprise his community. So he was born with this long red birthmark on his head. And the Druze believe, as some other cultures do, that birthmarks are related to past life deaths. So when the boy was old enough to talk, and I believe he's about three years old at the time, he told his family he'd been killed by a blow to the head with an axe in his former life. Now it's, it's customary for elders in the village to take a child at the age of three to the home of his previous life if he remembers it. And the boy knew the village he was from. So there they went. And when they arrived in the village, this boy remembered the name he had in his past life. And a village local said the man the boy claimed to be the reincarnation of had gone missing four years earlier. So his friends and family thought he may have strayed into hostile territory nearby, as sometimes happens in that region. The boy also, get this, he also remembered the full name of his killer. And when he confronted this man, the alleged killer's face turned white. But he didn't admit to the murder. The boy then said he could take the elders to where the body was buried. Oh, this just gets better and better. And in that very spot, they found a man's skeleton with a wound to the head that corresponded to the boy's birthmark. They also found the axe, the murder weapon. Faced with the evidence, the murderer admitted to the crime. True story. Unbelievable. And this story has uh, stuck with me for several weeks. And here's my dilemma. I put everything through my faith filter, as you know, as an Orthodox Christian. And Reincarnation is not currently part of my faith. It doesn't square with, with the biblical narrative. And yet there is this story of this young boy 
And there are enough other examples like this to fill several volumes. And I've also, as you well know, witnessed several past life regressions, and I've seen some things that have amazed me and shocked me. I've even had past life regressions performed right here live on the air, some more remarkable than others. So this, this subject of reincarnation and past life regression, it fascinates me, but it's also very problematic, and I continue to struggle with it. I know, I, I know a number of Christians who have no problem with the concept of reincarnation. And of course, there is this, this whole school that believes that the early Christians, in fact, did believe in re- reincarnation, but it was somehow expunged from the Bible. I don't know. I, I, uh, I wish it were that easy for me, but it's not. Maybe one day. Who knows? Uh, maybe tonight is the night I'll go all in on reincarnation. Maybe Dr. Ilana Gabor, who is standing by, will be able to help me resolve this. Maybe not. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter, though. I, I don't need to be convinced. Something's going on with past life regressions, and I don't get tired of talking about it. And uh, judging by the emails I receive after I do a show on past lives, neither do you. Uh, a couple of years ago, my television partner and I went to L- L.A. to film a couple of past life regressions uh, in hopes of producing a pilot for what we think will be a pretty good television show about past life regression therapy. And while we were out there, I met Dr. Elana Gabor, a medical hypnotherapist. And then we had the late actor David Carradine's ex-wife, Marina Anderson, undergo a past life regression. And Marina was still struggling with some, some issues relating to her uh, relationship with David Carradine, who was a very talented but extremely troubled individual, as many of you probably know. So there we are in the hotel, and we filmed this regression, and it was very emotional and very real. And I was very impressed with Dr. Gabor, and I wanted to bring her on the radio program, uh, program and, and ask her about this, the case of this young boy from the Golan Heights and, and talk generally about reincarnation and past life regression. So that's where we're going for the next 45, 50 minutes. Dr. Elena Gabor is a researcher of the subconscious mind and human consciousness. She holds certifications in hypnotherapy, medical hypnotherapy, and hypno-coaching. She's a certified hypnosis instructor. In 1995, she received her license as a medical doctor of stomatology in Europe. This is equivalent of the uh, doctor of dental medicine in the U.S., And later, she specialized in general stomatology. After 10 years of practicing as a medical doctor of dentistry, she redirected her focus towards researching a new field of study, subconscious medicine, the science of the subconscious universe. She's currently practicing medical hypnotherapy in Los Angeles and in Europe, helping thousands of people overcome their health and life challenges and explore their immortality. And she's the author of a brand new book entitled Home at the Tree of Life that sheds light on the mysteries of consciousness, life and death, and the underlying causes of physical and mental conditions. Dr. Gabor, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. How are you, Richard? I'm very well, thank you. And it's good to, uh, to speak with you again. It's been a few years. Um, yes, thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be on your show. Well, congratulations on on the new book. Uh, but first, I, thank I, you. I'm sure you're familiar with this this story of this um, young boy from the Golan Heights. 
I just wanted to get your take on on that. Uh, you've probably heard many similar stories. I'm guessing. Yes. Yes. What's, well, what? um, past lives seem to be a reality for my clients. We explore them for the purpose of healing. Um, you know, in uh, past life regression therapy, it doesn't really matter uh, if those memories are really past lives or they're just metaphors of the ma- mind. It matters that the clients are able to resolve their current challenges. So whether those uh, experiences are really past lives or not is not really important uh, from my perspective. What I discovered, though, is that they're not actually past lives. They're simultaneous existences. Souls live simultaneous lives. There is no time as we, we've created time in this reality. So basically all the lives happened at the same time. In other words, there's no past or future, there's only now. Yes, exactly. Uh, but, but, but because we are in essence prisoners of the space, space and time, we perceive yeah. a past and a present. So in yeah. our, in our, I mean, in, in our minds, you know, we had had past lives, uh, but you're saying that the soul exists simultaneously. So we're... Yes, exactly. This is what quantum physics is starting to point out, that consciousness is non-local, that all experiences happen simultaneously. That's a, that's a difficult thing to wrap one's head around, isn't it? Um, well, I have um, an interesting comparison to, to make us um, easily grasp that concept. Um, if you think of a river, let's think of a Mississippi River in the U.S. It passes through, through a few states, through many cities, many towns, many villages, but it's the same river in all those places. The soul is a river of consciousness and energy that passes through all those lives at the same time. That is an interesting is analogy. It? it does help sort of cement it in my mind. Yes, yes. But, but uh, uh, the other point that you made, and this is something that I've come to, uh, to understand uh, in my conversations with you and people like Dr. Brian Weiss and, and, and others, is that it doesn't matter whether or not one believes in previous lives uh, or whether, you know, the soul exists simultaneously in in, in different lives. It doesn't matter if one believes that. If these memories are simply metaphors, uh, they can be obviously very healing. And and I know in your new book, uh, Home in the Tree of Life, you've got a number of, I believe there are four uh, case studies where people uh, have undergone past life regression therapy and um, have had uh, some pretty remarkable results in overcoming uh, disease, disability, and so forth. Uh, Before we get into these case studies, let's just set the table and talk for a few moments um, uh, how, in fact, um, bringing these memories into the subconscious, how they are able to allow people to overcome Everything from uh, uh, you know habitual drug use, alcoholism, uh, a chronic pain. Uh, in other words, 
you're finding the source of all of these ailments exists yeah. in the subconscious in previous lives. Explain how that works. So basically, during past life regression, you get a chance to see through the eyes of your past self that mirror back to your familiar feelings. You get to see why you had those feelings. You get the chance to reevaluate the situations or the traumatic events that generated those feelings. You can face those fears and resolve them. You get the chance to see those situations in a much more positive perspective. Resolve your feelings towards everyone involved in those situations. Release the anger, the blame, the victim mentality and label those situations as opportunities to exercise your positive nature and to master unconditional love. All right, this we'll take is basically the purpose of all lives. All right, we'll re we'll, we'll revisit that again. We'll take a time out. We'll come back. Dr. Elena Gabor is with me and uh, we are discussing past life regression therapy and reincarnation. Also, we'd welcome you to the conversation with questions or comments as well. Her new book is entitled Home at the Tree of Life. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Dr. Elena Gabor holds certifications in hypnotherapy, medical hypnotherapy, and hypno-coaching. She's a certified hypnosis instructor. And uh, her brand new book is entitled Home at the Tree of Life, uh, shedding light on the mysteries of consciousness, life and death, and the underlying causes of physical and mental conditions. Uh, now, I, I want to talk further about that. So uh, let's say someone has uh, um, uh, undiagnosed chronic pain. Give me an example of uh, what you typically might discover uh, in past life regression that uh, reveals the source of that pain. Can, can you give me an example? Yes. Um, I had clients, for example, that had um, a pain in the arm in one of the arms, right? And then as I regress them to the sources of the pain, they discover that they've experienced traumas in that in that past life in that arm. They died in the war or they had the arm amputated, they were shot or experienced any other type of trauma. So they've carried that pain with them because they have not resolved their feelings toward what happened in that life. So they have not forgiven the people that did that to them and carry those those feelings of blame and anger and sadness with them. Once you resolve your feelings, your your beliefs, your thoughts about that situation, you resolve your feelings. That's how the pain and all the other other symptoms disappear. And when you're dealing with an addictive uh, personality, um, let's say someone who's um, an alcoholic, uh, yeah. could you give me an, an example from one of your cases where the underlying cause was discovered in a previous life? Well, um, I described two cases of this nature in my book, uh, the case of Mia, the main character of the book, and the case of Professor Ben. Um, they were both drinking too much wine at night to numb their emotional pain. So um, as I guided, for example, Mia in, uh, uh, to, to discover the sources of her emotional pain, basically 
uh, depression, suicidal thoughts, anxiety, negative thinking, and so on. She had a lot of issues. Uh, she went into several past lives um, that presented powerful lessons for her about love and positivity um, that made her feel again love. For example, um, she saw life, uh, a very happy life for her, um, that she lived in France in the 1800s. She was raised by a gypsy community because her parents were killed. Uh, so at a very young age, she ended up in that gypsy community. She had a very simple and beautiful life. And then she met a man by the name of Mark in that life. She got married with him. She got to feel the love she had in that life for that man. In that moment, her as Mia in this life was experiencing again love because depression and suicidal thoughts are the result of the lack of love. So energetically, because we're all energetic beings, she was able to elevate her vibrational frequency and release the disempowering beliefs she hold it on to. She was able to actually understand that her current life is really beautiful and simple, uh, not, not as she initially thought that it wasn't uh, worth living. So this is how through a past life regression, you can get to feel in a different way that could teach you again to feel love and what type of feelings you should perpetuate in this life. Because basically the way we feel is the result of our thoughts and beliefs. When we operate from very disempowering thoughts and beliefs, we don't feel good. That's the road to actually create depression and anxiety and emotional pain that leads to addictions. So by relearning to functioning from very loving, compassionate, empowering beliefs, you perpetuate good feelings that help you heal from the conditions you, you have. And, 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 and typically, uh, how, in, in Mia's case, uh, yeah. how many uh, regression therapy sessions uh, did she have to undergo uh, to essentially overcome her, her uh, dependency on alcohol? Uh, I think after two sessions, she was done with drinking alcohol. After the first session, her suicidal thoughts disappeared. Her uh, symptoms began to alleviate, and in a few sessions, she completely overcame depression, and then she stopped drinking alcohol. She stopped smoking cigarettes. She lost 30 pounds after seeing a life as a caveman. Um, basically, she began finding the balance between her human life and her soul life. Healing is the alignment between the consciousness, the levels of our consciousness, the conscious mind aligning with the subconscious mind and with the uh, spirit consciousness, the higher self, the superconscious mind. All diseases come from misalignment of these levels of consciousness, from the conflict that basically the negatively oriented part of the mind creates with our true self. All diseases, cancer, everything, everything. all diseases. Everything, everything, exactly. Because when you're aligned as a consciousness with your higher levels, 
then as a human being with your higher levels of consciousness, you create a bridge of communication, a bridge, you become a vehicle for the positive energy of the universe and the energy of the source because your highest level, your super conscious self, your spirit consciousness is in connection with the source of everything in existence. And through that connection, the energy of, of the source, the highest frequencies of the universe begin flowing through your energy field. There is energy flowing through us constantly. And when that high vibration frequency flows through you, then all the blockages are dissolved, all the low vibration blockages in your energy field that cause your diseases are dissolved. You begin feeling love again. You begin balancing yourself and... Uh, basically function from your true nature, which is pure positive energy. Uh, are there examples where someone has had a cancer go into remission as a result of regression therapy? Actually, Mia had uh, pre-cancerous uh, cervical lesions when she first came to me. After our work, those lesions completely disappeared. Wow. Um has that been has that been sort of verified uh, she's gone to a doctor absolutely and... yes absolutely she was diagnosed initially she had several treatments didn't work things were getting worse and as we started our work together um everything balanced out slowly she healed from everything not only from one one situation from every condition she had and she had many, as I as I told you initially. So, uh, going back to the the quantum physics, it, it sounds like that. Correct me if I'm wrong. What you're saying is that uh, a disease is it, it manifests as some sort of a wave. I mean, and we know that in quantum, you can collapse a wave. Is that is that? I'm oversimplifying it, obviously. But is that what's happening? You're essentially collapsing the wave. Um, I'm not sure if that would be the exact description. It may be correct. Um, um, you know, I like to think in terms of energy frequency and vibration, just like Nikola Tesla suggested in order to understand the universe and our lives. So basically, high vibration positive energy is what we're made of. It feels good to us. It's our true nature. Low vibration energy which we create with negative thoughts, perpetuating negative feelings, negative way of speaking, negative actions. When we create those low vibrations, where do they go? In our energy field. Slowly they accumulate, they block the positive energy flow through the body, and that's how our organs are unable to function properly anymore. But even even uh, people that are are uh, very positive and happy and 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 joyful, uh, they get sick too, don't they? Um, probably, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, many people we're not really completely understanding the concept of positive thinking. Many of us think that we're very very positive, and actually we're not. Um, you know, positive thinking has been depicted uh, brilliantly as this um, type of uh, wishful thinking or illusory thinking. Is not that positive thinking is realistic thinking. 
um, you have to love yourself unconditionally to have no criticism for uh, for yourself. So very few people love themselves. Uh, unconditionally. When you don't love yourself, you identify yourself with a negative ego, you create conflict between your levels of consciousness, and that's how you create diseases. Um, Positive thinking means to have unconditional love for everyone, to evaluate every situation in a realistic way, look at the lesson that situation provides, learn every lesson life provides, do the best you can next time, um, and resolve all your feelings towards everyone involved. Carry no baggages with you of, of negative feelings. That's what positive thinking is. Now, if in a previous life that you, you, um, you know, you, if, if you are regressed and in this previous life, it's, you know, it's a very traumatic experience. Uh, let's say you died a very violent uh, death or you were yes. uh, abused in that former life. Is it not traumatic and, and injurious to the person to re-experience all of that? No, no. It's not like reliving that life. It's like watching TV and seeing a story on TV. Yes, many people cry, you know, in, in, in the sessions, but it's not, not a, a really uh, traumatic way of experiencing. It's, 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 it's a beautiful way, actually. You feel really good. You, you see your life in a totally different perspective once you, you go through a past life. Right. And, and how does one prepare oneself? Um, who, let's say, for example, someone like myself, um, who's never undergone a, a past life regression. I have, as you know, I think I've talked to you about this. I have great uh, trepidation about doing that um, uh, for a whole host of reasons. Uh, and yet I, I understand that I don't necessarily have to believe in it uh, for it to have uh, a great benefit. But what does it, how does an individual prepare before going into a regression? in order to maximize the benefit? Well, um, meditation can maximize the benefits because during meditation you learn to quiet the ego mind, the mind that, uh, you know, that that constant chatter. Um, But I've noticed that there are people that have never prepared in any way, never done any regression, and they go very deep from the first session. They connect very deeply with their higher levels of consciousness and are able to perceive clearly um, just like they are their souls. You know, in that state, you're connected. Your conscious mind is connected with the subconscious, and you're able to see exactly like you as a soul sees. And um, there are people that um, have a difficulty in quieting their conscious, egoic mind. Yeah, that would be me. I have um, uh, what they call the uh, the monkey mind. It's just it never turns off. There's a constant mm-hmm. inner dialogue going. I I think I would be very difficult uh, a case to uh, uh, to regress. Uh, I have that suspicion. So. What would I do to uh, what? What can I do to quiet my mind that would allow me to to regress? First of all, it's very important to understand that you are in control of the mind. The mind is not you, Richard. It's just a program you have. Uh, you are the consciousness, and you have you constructed in this life a conscious mind in order to be able to function in this reality. 
but you are in control of it and you can quiet your mind. You can choose to identify yourself with a positively oriented thoughts or you can choose to identify yourself with a drama that negative thoughts create. So this understanding makes us become more aware and more in control of the thinking process. We can very well choose to think in a positive way, in a loving way, and quiet the mind completely. Meditation would be another amazing tool. There are many studies that show, many scientific studies that show the benefits of meditation. All right, uh, back with more of my conversation with Dr. Ilana Gabor, home at the Tree of Life, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. And uh, we are back with uh, Dr. Elena Gabor, author of Home at the Tree of Life. Uh, talk to me. Well, we've, I want to get to uh, 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 Professor Ben's uh, case here in just a moment. But before we do that, this is kind of a short segment. Uh, I, I want to talk about um, what happens. This is the big question, the million-dollar question. But what happens to the soul um, at the moment of death? Um, well, the soul gets to elevate its frequency and reach the light. Um, they may perceive the light at the moment of that, the light absorbing them, or they may perceive their spiritual guides that are uh, there to welcome them and guide them back to the light. Um, in the light, um, there is an entire process that happens. The light is a gate for soul purification. Uh, the light has the ability to demagnetize all the energetic blockages uh, from the energy field of the soul. And um, as the soul goes through different uh, gates there in the light of evaluation of the life uh, it just ended, the soul gets to enter beyond the light, the ultimate reality, the heaven described in religion, the infinite non-physical reality that is at the base of everything in existence, that is the, our soul's eternal home. So at that transition between the light and the ultimate reality, the soul re-becomes the spirit, the higher self, the superconscious um, level of consciousness and then um it enters again home and there the first stop uh, it does uh, is at the tree of life which is the akashic record place where the soul leaves all its memories about uh, the life is just lived and um re-becomes its spirit consciousness and based on the decisions it made about about what would follow next if the soul would choose to remain there for a while or reincarnate, it would go in its dimensions if it chooses to remain home for a while or for good. And if it chose to reincarnate, uh, then it enters a training program uh, together with a spiritual guide. They get to, to, to create a new life with all the versions of that life that would give the soul the opportunity to um, progress in that life. And uh, is there an average number of, of, of times that one soul will reincarnate, or is it, is it very much an individual thing? It is, in a sense, uh, an individual thing, because every soul chooses uh, to incarnate as many times as it wants. Um, many souls, though, get to, to live almost an infinite number of lives. 
And at, at uh, one point, it, do we stop reincarnating when we've learned all the lessons? Is that the idea? We stop reincarnating when we reach the level of evolution of the, the source itself. When we reach that vibrational frequency, we reunite with the source again. Can you tell, um, you know, we, yes. of, we often hear that expression, oh, you're an old soul. Uh, can you tell when you meet someone roughly how many times they've, they've been around, uh, how many rodeos they've had, in other words? It is hard to evaluate that. Um, it is very hard, but yes, you can identify uh, an old soul. It, it's usually a person who has a lot of love for people, a lot of unconditional love, and uh, um, has a lot of forgiveness, a lot of kindness, a very, very supportive, loving person. How long does it take? Uh, what is the, I guess, the the waiting period in terms of when someone dies before they reincarnate again? Is it, is it, is it a matter of minutes? Is it months? Is it years? Um, I guess it's, it's a, ma- a matter of at least a few months because you stay in the light. When you die, you stay in the, in the light um, for about a few months, although it seems that just minutes have passed. For the soul, uh, time has a different meaning. But for us, months pass until they reach um, uh, home again, that ultimate reality. And why is it that some people, for example, uh, this young boy who resides in the Golan Heights, why is it some people seem to have um, distinct, vivid, detailed memories of previous life, lives without the without the uh, the aid of regression while others do not because that soul was able to constantly go into that life those lives happen simultaneously they continue to exist parallel with our current life and for some reason, the soul, probably because it, 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 the soul wasn't at peace with what happened in that life, was keep going in that life, and that information was surfaced in the conscious awareness of that boy. And, and do, do young children generally have memories of a previous life? We often hear kids, I'm, I, even my own children, I know when they were very young, they would say things that sort of made me wonder... Uh, uh, whether or not they were, they had some memory of a, of a past life. Do children at a very early age tend to remember previous lives? Um, yes, and it's because the conscious mind is not the mind that we're born with. We're born with a subconscious. It takes a while to form the conscious mind. So basically, uh, very young children uh, function from their subconscious, and at the subconscious level, they're able to access other lives. So they talk freely. It's a reality for them. Only after humanity imprints its beliefs on you, when your conscious mind begins forming, slowly you start functioning from your conscious mind and disengage from your subconscious. All right, we'll take a time out. When we come back, we'll uh, we'll talk about Professor Ben, one of the uh, fascinating case studies in Dr. Elena Gabor's new book, Home at the Tree of Life, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Uh, Dr. Elena Gabor stays with us. And again, the book is entitled Home at the Tree of Life. Uh, the the um, Orthodox psychiatric community 
and practitioners. This must just drive them nuts because, uh, you know, you have people like, you know, the classic example, someone like Woody Allen who brags about being in psychoanalysis for 50 years and, you know, obviously it hasn't worked. Uh, and yet with a couple of uh, past life regressions, uh, you know, Woody Allen could uh, could shed himself of a lot of that neuroses. Of course, he probably wouldn't make funny movies anymore. Um, but, I mean, what is the reaction from mainstream, the, the mainstream psychiatric community uh, are they are they uh, embracing this or do they think that it's a bunch of hocus pocus um, it's up to each and every person there are people that are very open they actually use hypnosis themselves I, I I've been to a conference in December last year and I was shocked of how many psychiatrists and psychologists got the training and hip in hypnosis and they were using hypnosis in their practices so there are a lot of them that very much believe in these things and there are a lot of them that are not um really aware of the benefits that they haven't studied it they did not spend enough time to actually form an opinion on this uh, let's take a few moments, and uh, we were talking about uh, Mia, one of your case studies. Um, and now, I, I believe Professor Ben also struggled with uh, alcohol. Um, what else can you tell us about that case? Professor Ben had an amazing life. So uh, he, he reviewed an amazing life. Initially, he reviewed a life in which he killed himself, and as a result of that uh, regression, his uh, suicidal thoughts disappeared. Um, and I want to mention that these people uh, went through psychotherapy, years of psychotherapy, years of medication, and it did not work for them. And then at some point, Professor Ben saw a life as a Roman soldier. Uh, that was a very interesting life. Uh, um, I've never had any other case like this. He saw himself living as a Roman soldier, marching with the Roman legions, and at some point he felt like he was baptized. And it was a very emotional moment for him, and he said, you know, I'm near this body of water, there is someone who's baptizing me. And all of a sudden he stopped and his body arched on the couch. I've never seen that. And I asked him, what's going on? And he said, it's Jesus. He just crossed by me. He just uh, passed by me. I feel his energy. It's, I, I feel he, this energy buzzing all over my body. Um, in that moment, there was a bridge of connection between that life, the person he was, Professor Ben was in that life, the Roman soldier. There was an energetic bridge of connection with his current body and the energy that emanated from Jesus passed through him and healed him of depression, of the need to, to drink alcohol, uh, sadness and the uh, negative view he had on life. Uh, that that was really fascinating. Uh, and, and Professor Ben, of memory serves, was a, was a pretty hopeless alcoholic, was he not? Not uh, hopeless. He, no. he was drinking a few glasses of wine ah. every single night right, to, to, right. to basically numb his pain. He was 
he is actually uh, chief of department at one of the most famous universities in the world. He's a successful university professor, traveled all over the world. Um, you know, he ha- he is very accomplished. But he had de- he had developed a physiological dependency on alcohol. Is what I guess yes, is what I'm saying. Yes, exactly, exactly. And so to to break that in a few sessions. Again, just yes, it is. It is amazing. It it is unbelievable. I I I'm still in shock of how easily you can resolve your challenges. Uh, is anyone taking this therapy into the prisons? Uh, imagine the work that could be done in, with with hardened criminals. I'm I'm, I'm wondering yeah. whether that's yeah, been yes. well. I I really believe that training the people to function from positive beliefs, to to have unconditional love for each other would reduce um, the criminal activities. Now, uh, if I might be so bold, and uh, I hope I'm not asking too personal a question, but, I mean, have you uh, undergone regression therapy yourself to overcome some uh, uh, some obstacle in your, in your present life? Yes, I've seen many of my past lives. Um, Obstacles. Well, I had fear of heights. I've seen, I've seen past lives about that, and I feel much better now. <laughs> um, um, what else? Obstacles. I'm not sure. I've been a quite balanced person in my life. I, I lived a really balanced life. Um, they were interesting lessons I, I saw in those lives. Actually, my past lives were for the purpose of exploration of who I truly am as an eternal being, to rediscover all those facets of my greater self. And um, can you give me some indication of, of, of um, who you were in previous lives? I've seen lives as spiritual teachers. For example, I've seen, I really love that life. I've seen a life in uh, in Africa, a very simple life. Somewhere in the 1600s uh, to 1700s, I lived a very long life. Um, I was, um, I guess, a wise man. The warriors of the tribe were coming for me for advice. I was calling them my brothers. Um, it, It was a life lived like in paradise. Basically, very simple, but very beautiful. Do you need to go to a regression therapist, or can you do that for yourself? I did it with other people. I didn't do it by myself. Is it possible for for a person to learn how to do it? I've seen a few of my lives by myself, but it's much easier when you do it with someone else. When you're guiding someone through a regression and um, you're taking them to a previous life, how, do, how does their subconscious mind know where to go? In other words, uh, what previous life, how does, how does it know to, to which previous life, to which year uh, to, to explore? Yeah. It's not the subconscious mind who chooses that. It's the higher self and the spiritual guide. That's the job of the guides to show you as a subconscious and as a conscious mind what challenges you had that are still influencing you. And these uh, spirit guides, uh, are are they, you know, what in the Judeo-Christian tradition we call angels? Are they the same thing? Um, In a sense, but not really. Uh, Angels are energies that have been detached from the Creator with the purpose of protecting the souls that incarnate. 
they don't reincarnate. They don't go through human life and or any other lives. Um, the spiritual guides are highly evolved souls with great experience in incarnation. So every human being has spiritual guides, um, souls that are experienced teachers, and they have spiritual guides from the angelic realm, which is part of home as well, of that infinite reality, for the purpose of protecting them in the ethereal field of the earth. You know, the ethereal field has uh, all sorts of energies from the highest uh, vibration energies to the lowest vibration energy. So you have to have a team as a soul to be able to actually function in this reality. Uh, and, and, and when you, uh, when, you, when you die and you go into the light and you say you stay there for several months, we, we often hear uh, about the, the, past or the, uh, the life review uh, you yes. know, does that actually happen where you're, it's like you're standing yes. in front of a movie screen and you see your entire life in review, or is that just a, a, a cliche? Uh, yes, there is a, an evaluation of your progress in, in, in the life you've just ended. It's not a judgment. It's a very positive evaluation. Uh, basically, uh, your guides will, uh, will evaluate if, you if you grew in that life if you progressed or not still uh, i would imagine i mean that i would i would imagine that would be a very painful thing to sit and watch imagine every conversation you've ever had with someone every mean thing you've ever said to someone every mean thing you've done yeah. to relive it and to be confronted by that that would be very very difficult it is very painful if you're in the uh, if you're on earth but it's not painful at all because you're in the light where there's only positive energy there. It's very high vibration frequency there. There is no way to feel any negative feeling in that state. You feel the energy that flows through you. That's what feelings are. And in that state, there is only beautiful energy that flows through you. So you, it's impossible to feel negative feelings. And once you pass beyond the light, they don't even have the concept there of what pain is. Only the ones that incarnated know as a concept what pain is. It's impossible to feel pain there. It is really paradise. It is really heaven. Well, why would... With that in mind, why would anyone then choose to return to this place? I mean, let's face it, it's <laughs> this is no party yes. down here. Yes, that's a great question. It's for the purpose of expanding the universe of the light, for the purpose of learning what it means to be everything, to have that experience, to know, what, to, to be evolved. That's what it means to be evolved, to know everything, to go through everything. We just have a few minutes uh, yet. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Sophia? Sophia had a very interesting life. She regressed into a life as a spiritual guide. I've never read in literature these types of regressions. So she saw a life as a spirit guide. She came into the ethereal field of the earth in order to protect a child. You know, she was her guide, her protector. She was able to see in both fields, in the ethereal field. So she was able to see all the energies, everything that was happening in the ethereal field, in the cosmic plane or astral plane, however you want to call it. And uh, at the same time, in the physical plane. 
So that, that was fascinating. Uh, so she was, as you say, her soul was living simultaneously, but she was able to experience that. She, her, her soul yes, was living it, in two different... Yeah. Yes, Sophia is an evolved soul that reached that level of evolution of having lives as, a, as spiritual guides. Well, uh, Dr. Gabor, uh, thanks for spending some time with us tonight. Again, the book is Home at the Tree of Life, and how can people get a copy of that? Um, going to Amazon.com, and also on my website. You can read about the book. You can purchase it from there. My website is drgabor.com. Also, I have a Facebook page, Dr. Elena Gabor Medical Hypnotherapy. Can this be done remotely by phone, for example? Absolutely. I work with people from all over the world by phone, by Skype. That's it, fascinating. It makes no difference. It makes no difference if you're there with them or they're at the other corner of the, the world. That's remarkable. Well, listen, again, uh, thanks for spending some time with us, and uh, we'll do it again sometime. Thank you. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Dr. Elena Gabor, Home at the Tree of Life and the website drgabor.com that's d-r-g-a-b-o-r dot com thanks to Tim Spreen for production we'll be back next week with a brand new show not sure what's uh, on tap but I'll promise you it'll be a good one in the meantime don't be afraid there's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known what you hear in the dark speak in the light and what I say in a whisper proclaim from the housetops Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.